Coming up on this week's show is our biggest Sega dream finally coming true. The most amazing thing you'll ever see on the C64. And we talk Broken Sword with Charles Cecil. This week's show is brought to you by Beer 52. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast episode number 246, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And can I just say how amazing it is to be back on the show, guys? It's good to have you back, man. We held the fort whilst you were away. Um, it was a bit chaotic. Things blew up. There were fires. But, you know, it was good fun. <laughs> I appreciate that, guys. I mean, I've missed a couple of shows. And um, I did get some nice messages from uh, the people that knew. I mean, I imagine a lot of people won't. But we did have a bit of a, a family tragedy. I mean, my, my dad, who's, you know, my, my hero, my best mate, um, suddenly passed away a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, as you know, family's got to come first. I've been home looking after my mum and just spending time out there helping to get stuff sorted out. But we're doing okay. And um, it was actually quite bizarrely, you know, when I was back at home, I did actually enjoy just sitting back and listening to the podcast over the last couple of weeks because I had no idea what you guys were going to do. And I thoroughly enjoyed the chat you had last week with uh, Charles Cecil as well because, I mean, I love Beneath a Steel Sky. And hearing that conversation that you're having with him as a listener, I just really enjoyed it. So listen, thank you guys so much for looking after things and jumping in at the last minute and doing the show over the last couple of weeks. Oh, no problem. And you know, that interview was absolutely fantastic. I, I really want to hear the drunken stoned version of uh, Beneath a Steel Sky. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we're actually doing part two this week of our interview with Charles Cecil. And oh my God, it's absolutely fantastic. We're talking about Broken Sword. Now, Broken Sword was one of those games that came out on the PlayStation, and it was at a time when adventure games were being rejected. Like, anything that came out on the PlayStation that wasn't 3D and kind of blocky basically got rejected. And, you know, Virgin was saying this, this wouldn't be a success. We don't want it coming out on the PlayStation. Then it came out and became one of the most popular series on the PlayStation. And that fan base is still huge today like the broken sword fan base are absolutely obsessive and it's all about puzzles it's about the knights templar there's tons of stories in there and then in this interview we also talk about the da vinci code as well which was another amazing game and that game was made with charles cecile and with ron howard as well who made the da vinci code film so it's all kind of puzzle and adventure based but also after that we do talk about his latest titles the new broken sword that comes to the switch and we're also talking about beyond a steel sky which is his new kind of follow-on game that's on the switch as well yeah nearly 30 years later finally followed up beneath a steel sky and um, i've downloaded it i haven't played it yet but i've seen you know a lot of people saying kind of how faithful it is to the original story and feel and I remember, you know, when I was away, obviously, we kept in touch and Ravi messaged me, he goes, my God, I've just done this interview. It's going to have to be a two-parter. We can't edit it down to like 45 minutes. So <laughs> there's not many that we've done that are two-parters, but I think this one definitely warrants it. Charles Cecil, he's going to be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, are you feeling comfortable today, Joe? I'm feeling very comfortable today. Thank you very much, Daniel. <laughs> that 
free last night, didn't I? It was uh, before, while we're still allowed to, before mixing was banned. It was a bit of a weird one. So I saw Dan in the flesh in person for the first time in six months. I've seen Ravi like twice because of we've had a couple of parcels and stuff delivered to each other and picked up and stuff like that. But it was really weird seeing Dan. But Dan brought round the the setup, which our our patrons have very very kindly paid for. Uh, and hopefully, I sound a little bit clearer, a little bit better, and I'm not sat on the floor anymore. Which is- <laughs> I've got a desk. I've got a desk. I've got a chair. I've got a computer, a keyboard, a mouse. I've got uh, I've got everything. I feel I feel like RoboCop. <laughs> You feel like a modern man now. I feel like a modern man, I do. Like, we're on the retro hour, but I'm a modern man now. It's funny because when I booted up the PC, like, Joe was like, what, is that it? Because before, didn't you have to, like, turn it on, then go and have, like, lunch? Yeah, pretty much. I used to turn it on about half an hour before we would start recording. And then, not last week, the week before, when me and Ravi were recording, I literally had to switch the laptop on on and off because we just kept coming back with health checks when we were trying to record. Health checks not passed or anything like that. Today, I don't think they even ran. It was just smooth sailing. We're just in straight away. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. So yeah, this, today, this is beautiful. So thank you so much. It's great that we're all on the same mics because now we can just like tweak it and we're all on the same setups and then mm-hmm. let's get this sounding so good. Yeah, and just making it more comfortable today. I mean, like you said, I mean, before, I mean, I actually took a little video around Joe's house and I did it yours, Ravi, when I set your kit up like a few weeks ago. You know, you can actually see what it used to be like for Joe, lying on the floor like a kid watching TV back in the 90s. Oh, God, uh, yeah. With <laughs> his USB mic on the carpet, you know, with this laptop that was actually Ravi's old laptop from about 13 years ago. Uh, but now the fact that, you know, we've all got nice setups and everything and the show's comfortable to do, it doesn't take, you know, we haven't got the technical problems that used to bog us down and everything. And that is all thanks to your support. And that is our incredible patrons. I know you guys actually had a patrons hangout when I was away as well, that I gather was um, equally as fun as it always is. Oh yeah, that was really good fun. And you know, we saw some new faces as well. That's what I love about the patron hangouts. We, we've got a regular crowd and a regular crew that are kind of in there, but then also every month we get a different person in there and it's just really nice. The conversations they always kind of go around the same subjects, but uh, we, we we covered a lot more stuff. There's always a bit of mobile phone chat as well about your favourite phones. Well, I mean, now that we've got these setups at home as well, we are going to be starting to do a second podcast uh, that we're hoping to do twice a month, the Retro Hour After Hours. I think we're going to record the first one this weekend. Going to be a bit more free-flowing, but you know, if you enjoyed this show, I'm sure you will as well. And that's going to be made available to our patrons. So not only will you get that, there are a few other perks on there as well, like an ad-free show, and um, you get it a bit early sometimes as well. But really... You're just ensuring that the future of this podcast, you know, that we keep going, we can keep getting it out for you every single Friday. And of course, for making a donation into our patron, you will get a mention on a future episode in the very prestigious high score table, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to Alexandra Fillion, Chris Pode, Hein Andre Gronstad, James Bradley, and Seth A. Robinson, who all made donations into the running of the show. Thank you so much for that, guys. We really appreciate it. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get part two of the Charles Cecil interview, talking about Broken Sword and lots more as well, some great news stories that we need to talk about this week. Something that we've been saying probably won't happen for a good few years now. It looks like it might finally be going ahead. Sega have teased that they could be doing a mini Dreamcast. Yeah, they're still teasing this, and it still could be a couple more years. But essentially, the Sega Hardware Lines lead producer, I'm going to ruin his name now, is Yasuki Yasuki Okunara. 
as recently spoke to a Japanese magazine publication called Famitsu, and he said that pretty much they are going to do another mini console because of, and it's going to be a worldwide release. So it's not going to be like the game, the Game Gear Micro. It's going to be a worldwide release. And he said they're most likely going to either do the SG-1000 Mini or the Dreamcast Mini. But he says it's going to be a couple of years before they do it because it took them a few years to perfect the Sega Mini. But that is great news because it means they're not getting, you know, at games to do it or anybody like that. It's going to be in-house with Sega. And they've got to do the Dreamcast Mini over the SG-1000. I know there's going to be SG-1000 fans out there, but there's a lot more Dreamcast Mini fans out there. I think if they do it really well, it it could be fantastic. Like, Mm. think about the Dreamcast was the first one to have online capabilities. If yeah. they managed to somehow integrate like a little online play or some way of downloading extra games online, that would really expand it and turn it into kind of a, a, a next level uh, mini console. Yeah, absolutely. I think they'd be really good for them to get some, you know, kind of long lost Sega IPs on there as well. Some games that people haven't really spoke about or played in a long time. Because you, obviously you're going to have Sonic Adventure 1 and 2 on there and you're going to have probably Power Stone and stuff like that but there's going to be so many other amazing like shoot 'em ups and you know top down shooters and games like Zombie Revenge and stuff like that you just don't hear anything about anymore so I'd absolutely love to see some of those games on there which are all you know in-house Sega games and I think they've obviously learned lessons by doing the Mega Drive and Genesis Mini like hmm. I said before to kind of outsource stuff to companies like at games and it didn't always get a great reception but i think now they know how to do these things in-house and they're already you know full steam ahead doing the game gear micro and they've done you know the mini arcade they've done as well mm. so see like their kind of hardware division is set up to do this kind of thing yeah i've seen a few people online saying oh it, it won't happen because the dreamcast wasn't popular enough but if you look actually the game gear still 10 million worldwide yeah. the dreamcast is like 9.8 so i mean there's not much between them, really. Pretty much the same, isn't it? Yeah. So but also, if you think of some of the titles, like Dreamcast had a big selection of shooting mm. games. So yeah. I'd, like House of the Dead, you know, there was there was a huge selection of shooters. I would love to see some kind of light gun. I, I don't know how hard it would be to do, but uh, some kind of light gun add-on for this. I think that would really, really sell. That as long as I get my keyboard plugged in and we can play Typing of the I Dead. Mean, I was about to say, I would love to see Typing of the Dead. I'd love to see House of the Dead. I don't know if they'd be able to do it, but even if it was on there and you could use the controller that comes with it, that would still be pretty cool. But this, I mean, when I was reading the article, you know, he says like it can't, it won't come out within the next year or two after the Sega Mini. So I would imagine we might see it 2022, maybe. But uh, still, it's 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 hopeful. Fingers crossed. <laughs> And, you know, the fact that some people say, oh, the Dreamcast wasn't that popular, you're looking at 10 million worldwide. The thing about it is the Dreamcast seems to be one of those systems that actually the popularity of it has grown mm-hmm. since it was on sale. I mean, you talk to pretty much any retro gamer, there are a lot of people that have kind of maybe didn't have it back in the day. You know, they've got a PlayStation 2 or something that in the last couple of decades have actually discovered what a great system it is. So I think actually the fan base in terms of retro fans is probably bigger now than it was like 20 years ago. Yeah, it, it got hammered by the PlayStation, didn't it? So that yeah. might have stunted it a bit at the time, you know, just the amount of people buying them. Yeah, no, 100%. I think I think Dan's right as well. People have gone back and discovered discovered it and found out like it's this like 2D fighting game, 2D shooting game, like powerhouse and people have fallen in love with it. So you'll probably find if they made it, I reckon it'll probably outsell its original run. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if the price is right on it. And I mean, interestingly, no mention of the Sega Saturn Mini, which I know <laughs> yeah. again, it's one of those systems, a very niche niche system. But I think if they're going to do these, I mean, if they're doing the Game Gear, if they're going to do the Dreamcast, may as well do the Saturn as well. I mean, it yeah. makes sense for 
I imagine they're all based on pretty similar hardware. Oh, you know? I can imagine the Saturns are a lot harder though because they s- stuck to um, 32-bit chips in there, didn't they? So is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a complicated architecture, but I imagine emulating that on like a... True, a actually, yeah. True. I think it's called Muffin or that there, there, there is a... Don't quote me on that, but I know there is a Saturn uh, emulator that's quite good at the moment. So um, it's good to see Sega kind of going back to roots and giving the fans, I mean, it's something we've been saying ever since Sonic Mania came out, that it really does feel like they're kind of listening to what their fans really want at the moment. So I'm all for that, the Dreamcast Mini, even though I've got an original, and I know you'll buy it, Joe, you buy all these mini oh, consoles. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> It'll be on my Christmas list. I'll, I'll even buy this. This will be my first mini console, but like I've been waiting for a Dreamcast kind of mini or something that I can use and put on my big HD TV. Mm-hmm. some of those amazing titles like power stone you just mentioned that and i was like yeah. oh god such a yeah, game. What a game what a game see that is a good point actually the fact that these mini consoles do the upscaling and you can output to modern screens because I, mean, I, I have my um dreamcast over vga i normally pump it out over but and a lot of games just say you know they're not compatible with that cable but when you get ones that are they look really nice and like you know a high resolution crt via VGA, so getting some of those games on um, upscale to HDMI look lovely, I think. so. Just give me virtual tennis and I'll be happy. (laughs) It's all Ravi needs for a happy life. (laughs) Uh, We'll keep you posted when the Dreamcast Mini comes out, though, but very exciting news. And actually, we've got more exciting news from Sega to talk about in just a minute. But while we're on the Mini theme, did you see this little tease that came out over the weekend then? This is from Retro Games Limited. Now, they're the company behind the c64 obviously they brought out the commodore 64 mini and then the the maxi model as it's kind of been nicknamed as well they put this little tease out saying coming 2021 from retro games limited and there is a silhouette of what we all recognize as an amiga 500 now this has kind of been the worst kept secret in you know retro computing that an amiga mini is on the way not many details so far but it definitely looks like an a500 shell on this picture It's needed to happen for a long time. I do think there will be a bit of drama because even if you release a mouse for the Amiga, you get drama. But um, (laughs) I think it's good that they've had a good history with uh, Calanto, who's the actual company that will probably, that own the rights to um, the operating system and also Amiga Forever and the kickstarts and stuff, which makes it all legal. They did the C64 Mini before and I think, you know, what they need to do is they need to get a good selection of games on there. So you want to see stuff like Defender of the Crown, Monkey Islands, Lemmings, Worms, Sensible Soccer must be on there. You know, these titles would really appeal to people. I'm not quite sure how big the Amiga market is these days, but I was looking at like, you know, the Turbo Graphics um, Mini and a lot more people that actually had uh, then originally had turbo graphics or actually bought those minis so maybe this is going to be a way of people exploring the amiga that previously didn't have one and and like look back and go oh james pond that was a good title or you know worms or r type or ufo enemy unknown something like that but they need to get the game selection correct for me um i think it could be a good replacement as well for anybody with a older hardware that needs a new case if it's uh, just like the C64 Maxis. I think what interests me about this is, like you said, it's going to be 
a computer, you know, again, like the, the C64. And actually, they did a really good job with the Maxi and the Mini that they did, you know, the 64 models, I think. Um, interestingly, it, it being an Amiga 500, if it is going to be a mini version, that would make sense. Because the Amiga 500 is like, it's, it's a beast of a machine. Yeah, It's massive. If they're going to be like, you know, remaking that as it was, like a full-size version. And, it, you know, I was wondering before, why didn't they do like an Amiga 600, which is a smaller machine? But I guess the A500 is kind of like the iconic Amiga. But I think compared to kind of previous projects that we've had, you know, stuff like the Mini MiG and stuff like that, I imagine this is going to be aimed at a much more mainstream audience. Like you were saying, then people that will probably want to play sensible soccer and stuff like that. So it's the kind of thing you're going to see in like Asda or Game. And, you know, if they can package it, again, like you said, that's important to get those games that are going to kind of tickle people's nostalgia. Um, but I mean, like the, with the Commodore 64, they actually had SD card slots on there, so you could download your own ROMs and ADFs and stuff, and you can put them on. But I think, yeah, to, to get people buying it in the first place, that kind of casual market, it's probably ha- going to have to have those games included that's going to get them interested in the first and, place. And, and I think it's going to be a little bit more expensive. This is obviously me just guessing at the moment, but because you're going to need a mouse, right? Like a lot of Amiga games are mouse-supported. They've already got that... St- from the c64 one so they could probably just repackage that but they're gonna have to have some kind of tank mouse recreation or mouse because out of the top 20 amiga games i'd probably say three quarters of them support a mouse you know yeah that is a good point and you know kind of you know it is possible to kind of map those games to a joystick but it's never a pleasant way of playing it but um you know in talking about the size of the amiga, amiga market as well i think in terms of obviously europe it was a very popular home computer here in america not so much, you know, it was more like the, the high-end market over there. But I think you made a good point then about maybe people that have heard about the Amiga or maybe people that have not really experienced it but are a bit curious about it. Like, I first thought of Joe when I saw this, because I know we've had conversations, Joe, mm. about the C32, and you said, I wouldn't mind one of those for my collection. But for someone like you who, you know, hears a lot about the Amiga doing this show, obviously, this could be maybe if they sell in these for like, you know, 60, 70 quid, that could be an easy way for you yeah, to kind of get access. Be like my gateway drug into Amiga. Yeah, <laughs> and, and spending five thousand pounds on uh, an Amiga Four. And you're right as well because we were questioning like why are they releasing the Vic Twenty? Because you know the Vic Twenty was a very small kind of niche compared to like the C64, which was biggest selling console before the Raspberry Pi. But Amiga as well, if you think about it, there's there's been previous projects and they've sold in the in the thousands. So obviously they must be having some kind of market prediction and, and, and basing it on the numbers. Maybe it's the nostalgia retro surge that's happening at the moment. Maybe it's driving people to kind of think, oh, I want to explore these other systems. Who knows? Yeah, and I think this is aimed at, like we said before, the casual buyer. It's not aimed at the you know the Amiga fans who are still active today, I don't think. This is going to be for people that had it. Yeah, they've already got Amigas. They don't yeah. need a new one. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's a great development. Um, and I wonder what the hardware is going to be like, though, because I know the Big 20 was essentially the 64, just in a different case. Whether that hardware is powerful enough to run the Amiga core on there as well, I mean... Well, I, th- I think the choice of a 500 is very um, uh, kind of showing us the direction that they're going to go because yeah. 500 you can get with like one megabyte of RAM for most games. Um, so, you know, they'll probably just go with that path. Like uh, there might be upgradable hacks and stuff, but I reckon it's going to be bare minimum system just to get going to play games on there won't be like you know any utilities or the 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 bigger computing thing it will be like the gaming side of amiga you know no built-in vampire no (laughs) no i don't think so not for uh, unless you're going to be charging a grand 
<laughs> so uh, we'll keep an eye on that. I mean, it's, it's, it's for 2021. I've been chatting to the guys, actually. So hopefully when you know there is more news to tell you, maybe we can get them on for a little bit of an exclusive, fingers crossed. Now let's get back to Sega. I mean, God, they're teasing us this week, aren't they? Oh, Another oh, big Sonic Adventure 3. On Sega are bloody buggers at the moment. Honestly, if this doesn't happen, I'm, I'm going to be vexed, man. <laughs> so, so Midlands, Joe. <laughs> Honestly, like, all this stuff they keep saying, like, the other, what was it the other week when they were like, this, this is going to be as big as the PS4, and then it's the Game Gear Mini, and then it's like, oh, Sega might be getting bought out by Microsoft. Nothing. You Sega Pog. So, yeah, exactly. So this is. Well, we're talking about them every week, aren't we? We're talking about them every single week, and I, I love Sega. I love Sonic. It, this needs to happen. So what? So to get my head around this, the Sonic the Hedgehog Twitter page has tweeted a picture of Super Sonic, right? Yeah. So this is yeah. Sega own this account. Yeah. Sonic underscore Hedgehog. And they've done a post here saying, mathematically speaking, Sonic is aesthetically pleasing. Mm. And yeah, there's there's an image of Super Sonic, and it's kind of got some geometric shapes and stuff over it as well. But a few people have actually analysed this, thinking that was a bit of a weird tweet. Mm. And they've zoomed it in, and it appears kind of hidden, quite grainy, on his right cheek is the number three. Yeah. So... That's obviously got a lot of people thinking, what, Sonic 3? What can that mean? And then to kind of add a bit of fuel to the fire, um, Mike Pollock, who is Dr. Eggman's voice actor, he voices Dr. Robotnik in the games, he's replied to the tweet by saying, (laughs) just a little post of the Schoolhouse Rock song, Three is a Magic Number by Bob Durra. So he's posted that video directly under this tweet, Three is a Magic Number. So obviously it's something to do with the number three. Mm. And the fact that we've been talking about a few minutes ago there, the Dreamcast Mini might be coming out. Maybe they're going to be releasing the Dreamcast Mini with Sonic Adventure 3. They could be. And it is the 30-year anniversary of Sonic next year, next June. So which makes me feel really old now. But what do you... Sorry, what do you think about Sonic Adventure 3? Because I played one, absolutely loved it, got massively stuck on Sonic Adventure 2 halfway through and could never continue from that point. But maybe you've had a different experience. I mean, I, I loved Sonic Adventure 1 and 2. I had I had them for the Dreamcast, so I always really enjoyed them. And obviously we all know Sonic hasn't had the best experience in 3D now for what? 15 years, something like that. Uh, yeah, so um, I think this is, it, it's a welcomed return um, and it need it, they just need to make sure they nail it because if obviously if it is Sonic Adventure 3, it needs to be, it needs to be bloody good to kind of yeah. make up for the last kind of 15, 16 years of pants 3D games. And hopefully, hopefully it will be, you know, Sonic Mania was really, really good. That was an amazing game. Everybody loved it. So hopefully, you know, they, they do something fantastic for us and it could even come like you say it could come out alongside the dreamcast mini could even come out on the dreamcast mini which would be unreal but also what's quite funny is on this article uh, it does say it could actually just be sonic rush free which would be a bit disappointing but when usually when you think of sonic and you think of the number three people usually think oh my god sonic adventure three it, it, it you know that needs to happen kind of thing so it, it's just it, Watch Sega do nothing with it, though. You know what they're bloody like. <laughs> but it's been something, like you said, the fans have been demanding. And it kind mm. of, I mean, the last 3D Sonic game I got was um, Sonic Boom Rise of Lyric on, uh, I think it was a Wii U, which, uh, yeah, I think I played about an hour of it and I was like, yeah, that'll do me. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, Sonic Generation, I enjoyed the 3D parts of that. Oh, that was, was good, yeah. 
Yeah, that was a really good game. But I think it does seem, like we're saying about the, the Dreamcast as well, that Sega are finally listening to the fans. And, you know, if they can look at what made those two original Sonic Adventure games kind of magic, because that was Sonic's real first jump into like the 3D environment, I think if they can recapture that magic again, which I've, I've got faith that they can, you know, if they get the right people on board, then I think that would, you know, that would get them some real big brownie points. Then, or, or they're just really good at PR and rumours. I mean, it says in this article here, but stuff like, you know, Crash Bandicoot 4, uh, Tony Hawk's obviously been massive again recently. It does kind of seem like there is a big nostalgia for that kind of late 90s, early 2000s era again at the moment. So. Oh, I've been playing that Tony Hawk, so Redux is so good. Yeah, well, so that's the thing. It's like a lot of people are kind of at that age now where, you know, if you kind of, if that was your first console, like you had a Dreamcast or maybe a GameCube when you were a kid, you'll be at that age now where you're kind of feeling a bit nostalgic in your 20s, I guess. So, or for, or for guys like us, you know, would love to play a follow up to those games. So, I've got faith it'll happen, Sega. Don't let us down, please. Please don't let us down. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, Joe will cry. I will, I will. Now, at the moment, a lot of us are still working from home. I mean, it feels like every week, you know, the world's going, uh, <laughs> we're all going out, then we're going back in again at the moment. And Zoom is something that's become a central part to our lives. I mean, I think, God, 18 months ago, no one had heard of Zoom. Now, everyone's on it at the moment. But if maybe you're a little bit bored of stuffy business conferences and calls with your workmates, you can actually put a bit of retro fun into your Zoom calls. This looks like Habbo Hotel to me. Like, they're like, <laughs> oh, it looks super retro, but Ravi pointed out how it looked like Habbo Hotel. So I'm not 100% familiar with this, but is it a software company in America have made like essentially chat rooms in Zoom, but you can walk around them as like a little 8-bit avatar and you can go into the different rooms and talk to people and essentially you can walk around like a retro castle? Yeah, it's like you can get 25 friends and sit in ready-made spaces. A castle, New York Times Square, the moon, space. Oh, wow, and <laughs> go around and chat. Like I reckon Habbo Hotel with video cameras would be the most disturbing thing you've ever been on in your life. But <laughs> this seems all right because you've got 25 of your friends. And yeah. uh, you can also like add stuff from your Spotify playlist mm. into it. You can play games like gambling as well and... Uh, little bit of poker, stuff like that. It seems like a cool little idea, kind of like a an expansion of a Zoom, really, from just sitting there staring at boxes. I can imagine, like, companies doing this for, like, their Christmas parties or something, you know, because <laughs> we, we're obviously not going to be able to all go and have, like, big piss-ups in bars and stuff like that. I feel like, because of, like, on Fridays, my work tried to do, like, the fun Friday where we all have a beer and we all go on Zoom and talk about our week. Yeah. And like our boss was like a quiz and stuff. And, you know, I get why they're trying trying to do it and everything. But I feel like this is something that we might freshen it up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of like not for those people who are gamers, because the gamers would probably just go onto a gaming network and all play together. Whereas this is like, it seems a bit more kind of casual. You don't really need to think about it. You, you know, you can eat at the same time, do that stuff, you know. <laughs> Well, this is actually, it's not based on Zoom. It's a its a video conferencing system called Gather. Okay. And again, it, you know, it's, it's a conferencing suite like Skype or Zoom or something like that. But again, yeah, the way you do it by the looks of this, they combine retro video games with video conferencing. So you get little pixelated 2D characters. Looks a bit like an old RPG game that you yeah. might have played on the NES or something back in the day. And I mean, they're showing a couple of demos here where people actually get the little avatar. You walk up to a table where a few other people are sitting around, your camera comes on, and you can have a chat together. But also, they've actually built in a few kind of retro-style games into it as well. There's a little demo here of uh, people sitting around um, uh, having a game of, um, I think it's 
poker they're playing actually um like a eight big style poker so again i mean like you said it, it kind of does inject a little bit of fun into those kind of boring work meetings as well i'm not sure if we're playing a game how much work could actually get done this yeah that is true <laughs> yeah and like if we did it for our patron chat i can imagine it would be chaos everyone running around <laughs> good idea we should do our next patron hangout on this this looks loads of fun give it a go yeah <laughs> So, uh, I mean, it, it's always good to see retro games kind of uh, getting put into environments you wouldn't expect to see them in. So if you want to check it out, I'll put a link to that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. You know, occasionally when you're playing on your retro handheld systems, for example, you know, you've got your game gear or you've got your links. Isn't it a pain when you run out of batteries? Oh, but for actually, sure. If you've got a spare potato lying around, maybe that could come to your rescue. Or spare 700 potatoes in this case. <laughs> yeah, so this is an interesting article. Um, it's uh, Potatoes of Doom. These guys have basically managed to run Doom on a Raspberry Pi Zero uh, with lots and lots of potatoes. And Joe was kind of asking me, like, how does this work? And it's, it's the acid in there. Mm. And... The acid is kind of like battery acid. That's how it originally was. And you can you can fuel stuff from lemons. So there's actually a, a site called Future Farmers, and they were looking at fueling their original Game Boys from lemons. And they were thinking, how many lemons do you think they'd need, Joe? What, to, to fuel a Game Boy? One Game Boy, yeah. Well, if it's 700 potatoes to fuel a Raspberry Pi Zero to play Doom, I don't know, 100? <laughs> 100 lemons? 48,000 lemons. Oh, would be needed. oh wow. <laughs> For an original Game Boy. Okay. <laughs> but um, there's also a thing called fruit controllers. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a, a little board called Makey Makey. This with the bananas. Pardon? This with the bananas. Yeah, this is any fruit. So basically what you can do is you can get this little board and it's like a D-pad. And you you take with crocodile clips out of the D-pad and then you attach it to your fruit of choice, whether it be a banana, an apple, a kiwi or a lemon. And what you can do is use them to control the video game. But like, obviously, you have to be not that aggressive or you're going to be squeezing your lemons and kind of uh, ruining the reactivity. But I've actually played on one of these fruit um, gaming machines and it's absolutely mental and the circuit board's only like 40 quid from firebox called uh makey makey so if you want to use some of your fruit at home you've run out of um, components for your machines then you could just go to your fruit bowl hook them up and start playing retro games imagine if you you know you buy your new ps5 and you open it up and it just comes with like a switchboard and a banana for your control <laughs> <laughs> i know all, all parents are thinking there's a way to get the kids to eat the fruit and veg yeah definitely <laughs> I wouldn't like to eat it after about 50 people have played on it. <laughs> squeezed, squeezed the banana. Not after a sweaty Streets of Rage session, maybe not, yeah. Now, before we chat to uh, part two of Charles Cecil with uh, Ravi, uh, Broken Sword is the subject this week. Let's just have a quick look at this. I mean, this looks incredible. One of my all-time favourite games has been ported to a platform you wouldn't even think could run any of this game, let alone the full animated introduction. I'm talking about the adventure classic Another World, also known as uh, Out of This World, I believe it was called in America. Someone's actually got the amazing animated intro running in full on the Commodore 64. And there's also a little tease of kind of the, the start of the first level in here as well. This looks insanely good. 
for the C64. I, I knew you'd love this. As soon as I saw this story, I was like, that's that's one for done there. Yeah, um, this just looks amazing. And it's it's kind of like a demake or, a, a, you know, they've just reduced the graphics, but they've still got the elements of the animation in there. And, uh, well, Eric Chaihi also went to Twitter to say how impressed he was with the footage because it just looks fantastic. I remember playing Another World as a kid and it was always, I, I'd watch that animated intro right through every time because when you got Lester kind of pulling up in the car and, um, you, you know, when he lets himself into the building in the middle of the night and he uses his computer and ends up in that weird new dimension, it was just the most cinematic and atmospheric thing I'd ever seen in a video game at the time. And the fact that, I mean, you're looking at this, obviously the colour palette is a lot more limited than, you know, running it on the Super Nintendo or the Mega Drive or the Amiga. But actually the animation is really fluid. And apart from the the colour depth, it looks really similar. I think the colour palette actually adds something. It adds like a different element where it looks, It's I don't know, it's just got that look of elite or like, you know, one of these older titles and, I really love it, actually. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing if this fully gets released. Because, I mean, Another World's got to be one of the most ported games ever. So I think I played the 3DO version not long ago, and there's been a release on the Atari Jaguar in the last year. Yeah, I've got it on the Wii U. Yeah, it's like, yeah, the Wii U version's actually, I've got it on the Switch as well, which is actually quite nice because you can pause and kind of rewind bits. and <laughs> You haven't got those kind of, you know, those brutal moments where you have to start an entire level over and over again. It's a bit more fair than the original. But, I mean, seeing it running on, the C64, I never thought I'd see the day that it would even, you know, you could even play the actual game, never mind see the animated intro. So it's a work in progress at the moment. And obviously it's a massive job to get all that fit into a 64K. But I think if you want to check out this preview so far, it will knock your socks off. Now, before we get into our chat with uh, this week's special guest, Charles Cecil, at the moment we're doing an audio chat. We haven't got video on, but I know that Joe is holding a bratwurst. And I bet, Ravi, you've got your lederhosen on right now because Always. it is it's Oktoberfest time, one of our favourite times of the year. Now, we were actually in Germany this time last year, Ravi, enjoying Oktoberfest. Oh, but and it was what? proper good fun, wasn't it? Oh, it was an amazing time and uh, just the atmosphere of it as well, you know, the, the umper music and everything. We, we had such a good laugh doing it. Now, the reason we're mentioning Oktoberfest at the moment is because we want to give a big shout to our sponsor of this week's episode, our very good friends at Beer52. Now, if you head to this website right now, tap it in your phone, beer52.com, forward slash retro you can celebrate the famous beer festival of oktoberfest in your own home with a free case of eight german craft beers from our good friends at beer 52 the world's biggest beer club all you've got to do is cover the postage five pound 95 and they will deliver them straight to your door now we love beer 52 anyway i mean we've sang their praises for a good couple of years now they're actually the world's biggest craft beer discovery club and every month they visit a different country and they send you they curate a case to be sent to you through your door and they will actually put their finest craft beers from all around the world in there as well now they're celebrating germany this month but they've done loads of other countries from around the world and you can actually pick what kind of beers in there as well like ravi you prefer your pale ales i don't mind a dark beer joe's into his fruity stuff so uh, each case comes with their award-winning beer magazine for men and they'll include a tasty snack to enjoy with your beer as well so there's no commitment just have the free case of beer if you want celebrate Oktoberfest see what you think if it's not for you you can pause the cancel at any time and of course it goes without saying for doing this you'll be really supporting this podcast as well so head to beer52.com forward slash retro to claim your free case of eight craft beers on us beer52.com 
forward slash retro and raise a glass to the wonderful nation of Germany and let Beer 52 get the beers in. Right then, I think it's time. We got the second part of this incredible interview that you did last week with Charles Cecil talking about Broken Sword. That's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour and I'm here with Charles Cecil. We'll talk Broken Sword first. And the thing about Broken Sword was it was a really interesting period when that title came out because a lot of the software houses were being forced into going into this kind of 3D area and anything that wasn't 3D was kind of seen as old or different or or, or not sellable. So how, how did Virgin Interactive react to Broken Sword coming out for, say, the PlayStation? Uh, with very, very little enthusiasm. So Broken Sword 1 came out in, was it 1996? I think it was 1996. Um, and so it was a beneficiary of CD, but the big problem was that Sony's PlayStation came out and completely decimated and changed the market. So I love Sony and I love PlayStation, but they take full responsibility for the initial death of the adventure game. What happened was that um, there was a lot of enthusiasm from Virgin for the first Broken Sword, but with the emergence of PlayStation, they were absolutely in exactly the way that you've just described. They were obsessed with the fact that everything had to be visceral 3D games. And so they didn't want, even though the game had been hugely successful, the original, they didn't want to publish a sequel. So we um, we were surprised because the game had been very, very successful. Um, and in the end, um, Sean supported it. And the German marketing director, uh, also a very talented guy called Martin Spies, um, supported it. The Americans hated the idea. Um, and so initially the game came out on PC um, and Amiga um, and, and Mac. And in the, the, the way that PlayStation came into the world was that they employed a fellow called Phil Harrison, and I'd known Phil quite well because at Activision, he was a very smart, very tall guy that went around looking for work. And I'd commissioned him to write a game design, which we didn't actually use in the end, but I, I paid him. Um, and we kind of stayed friends, well, colleagues, I'd say, rather than friends. And I remember in about 1995, he phoned up and he said, look, I'm working for Sony. And this is totally confidential, but we have this new console called a PSX, codenamed PSX. It's not going to be the final name. Um, would you like to come down and see it? Now, at that point, I'd never talked to anybody from Nintendo. I'd never talked to anybody from Sega. And so the idea of somebody, a console manufacturer, actually getting in touch with developers was unbelievable. And um, so I remember going down to, to London and meeting up with him. And he showed a demo of a dinosaur head in 3D. Um, I, I'm sure it's available on the internet. But it felt incredible, incredible that you could move around and see this dinosaur moving. So I pitched Broken Sword. And I have to say, Sony had very, very little interest um, because they too thought that their audience wanted visceral 3D games. Um, and uh, they eventually convinced them to do it um, and went back to Virgin and said, look, we've had some interest from Sony. Um, 
would you like to publish it? And they laughed at us and said, this is just stupid. It'll never work. I mean, this is part of the disconnect between the audience and the publishers, to be honest. And we released the game onto PlayStation. And I really regret that we didn't do more work on the control system because if you're using a, a controller, it was it was difficult to control. There was an advert for a mouse in, in every version, and I think a number of people did buy a mouse. But we had not we hadn't we, we, we didn't know what to expect. And and then the game went out for review. Now, these days, if a magazine has a circulation of twenty thousand, that's really good. At that time, the official PlayStation magazine in the UK had a monthly circulation of 600,000. It was insane, wasn't it? It was insane. The popularity of that one, yeah. Yeah. Germany, I don't know what Germany was, but it probably wasn't far off, and France probably wasn't far off. And I remember that the reviewer of the UK was this young woman called Ali West. And the reason I remember her name is that she absolutely loved the game. She gave it 9 out of 10, and instead of the normal two pages, she gave it six pages. Following on from that, the and I owe her a great debt of gratitude because um, she really championed the game within future. Um, and, and on the basis of that, um, the game also got the same coverage in the French and the German magazines. And because of the success, they cover-mounted it. They had a demo that we hadn't taken very seriously that probably between one and one and a half million people played, PlayStation owners played. And the game was incredibly successful, hugely successful. And, you know, was later voted um, in the top, I think it reached number six, the, the sixth best PlayStation game ever. It beat a load of the Tomb Raider games. It, it just beat huge, huge, huge titles. And it was exactly what the PlayStation audience wanted. Of course, they loved, you know, the the, the breakout and all of those. Sorry, not breakout. Um, blah, 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 blah. Wipeout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wipeout is exactly what I was thinking of. You know, of course, they loved Wipeout. But what these publishers were all doing was producing a gazillion games that were all virtually identical. And so when something that was completely new and completely fresh came along, there was enormous enthusiasm for it. And... We worked as a first party um, with, with, with Sony, um, with PlayStation on this, and they had a tiny team. Uh, I remember the head of marketing was a fellow called David Patton, and uh, he, his um, head of PR was, was Liz Ashford. They were insanely successful, and yet they had so few people. And I remember, and I'm not sure I've ever told this story, but um, I remember with, with the first Broken Sword, we really wanted it out for Christmas. It would have been probably Christmas 97, I, I don't know, probably Christmas 97. We, we'd run into some problems and the QA guys in Liverpool had said, look, this is way off. So David sent me a fax, because that's what you did in those days, saying we're really you know, disappointed, uh, we're, 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 we're frustrated. He was really angry, but we're going to move this from Christmas. It's going to have to go into you know, next year. This was, we consider this to be a disaster. So I said, David, can I come and see you? And he said, okay. So I got on a train. And I went down to Sony in, um, in Marlborough Street and I went into his office and he told me how frustrated he was. They'd given us all this support, bloody, bloody blur. And I said, look, I think, I think you're misjudging it. Can I phone your head of QA in Liverpool? And he said, okay. And I phoned the guy and a new version had arrived. And he said, do you know what? This is so much better. I think you're probably going to make it. 
So I said, can you tell David Patton that we're going to make it for Christmas? Yeah, okay. So I said, David, here's whatever the guy's name was. And David said, okay, it's back on Christmas again. And that, that, was, that was the way that it worked. It was incredible. Um, wow. And David, uh, I mean, I haven't seen much of him since, but he's, he's been a Broken Sword fan ever since, and we kind of keep, keep in touch. But they were such a talented group of people. And, and part of the reason that, that they worked so effectively was because there were so few of them and they worked so hard. Um, Liz Ashford worked insanely hard. Um, but, but there was energy and enthusiasm and everybody was talking to each other and everybody knew what was going on. PlayStation changed after that. Um, but, and, and, and it went through good times and bad times. Um, but certainly that was very much a glory time, those, those, those late 90s. I think it's really interesting that kind of the fans took on board Broken Sword because it very it very much seemed like a series that was loved by fans and by the fan community, and that kept it going really. Oh, where yes. other it was titles hated were by like publishers. pushed, hated you know. by publishers. So, so I remember going to see um, uh, Tim Cheney, um, and you know when we were trying to get them to sign off Broken Sword Two, there was a game that he was in love with that had been signed called Creature Shock. I think it was by Argonaut. And he said, this is the future. Stop writing adventure games. This is the future. Um, and showed me Creature Shock on an enormous great television. And all I would say is, who remembers Creature Shock? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've never heard of it, to be honest. Um, like, out of all the Broken Sword games, then, which is your favourite? Um, I, I, I do. So, so, so can I briefly take you through why I'm, I'm going to sidestep that, that, that? So... The original Broken Sword um, came into conception when Sean Brennan um, invited me and Noreen to come and talk to him about what our next game should be, having shot down the Egypt game. Um, I think it was at that point, actually, instead of before, beneath the still sky. And he just read a book called Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. And in it, um, the central premise is that there's a Templar manuscript, there's a Templar um, wording or manuscript, and it all turns out to be a fake in the end. Sorry for that spoiler. But, um, and, and Noreen had come from a, a, a small village called Newcastle West in County Limerick. And Newcastle West, the castle was a, a Templar castle. And I knew a little bit about the Templars, but not very much. And started researching it, read, of course, Foucault's Pendulum. And realized that there was this incredible narrative that just nobody knew about. Um, and I think Broken Sword undoubtedly was the, you know, the, the mainstream game that went to, you know, that really created the zeitgeist. You know, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail had done it before us and Foucault's Pendulum. But, you know, we were the ones that really turned it into this sort of uh, work of, of fiction that went to a broad audience. And... Um, the, the head of Virgin France, uh, Thierry, Thierry Braille, um, I remember he, he, he was and still is, you know, a really good friend. And his father uh, drove us round to a commanderie and we went to um, the, uh, the catacombs um, in uh, Montparnasse and really, you know, spent um, a few days, incredible days, going and just retreading the extraordinary story of the Templars. And at that point, we didn't have an enormous amount of time pressure. And so um, I remember making substantial changes to the end of, of broke, the first Broken Sword. 
and not really worrying because we could then go back and rewrite it and re-implement it. And that, of course, came out in 1996. Um, and the interesting thing about that was that we got a lot of support from Virgin and they were very enthusiastic. Um, but back in those days, what a publisher would do is give a game to, because of the long lead times for magazines, you'd, they'd give it to the magazine two months before the game was, before the magazine came out. And that was two months before the game was available. So, you know, quite some time before it was finished. On the proviso that you would give them a list of all of the um, bugs that were going to be fixed. And Virgin chose PC Zone as their partner for this. And so PC Zone got a version that was full of bugs. And we gave them, you know, a list of what the bugs were. And a month later, and they, they, they had the exclusive, so they were out for the first month before anybody else caught, out, caught up. And they gave it to somebody who gave us the most terrible review. Hated the game. Um, commented on the bugs. Didn't like the game anyway. Didn't like adventure games. Um, it was a catastrophe. And, you know, this, this our baby was being, you know, garroted. It was, uh, and it was just so profoundly depressing. And... We looked at this where we thought and Virgin thought that this was a game that was going to be really, really well received. And PC Zone had hated it and given it a real kicking. And, you know, um, but then at the same time, the review, uh, sorry, but then none of the reviews had come out. Um, and we could only wait with bated breath to see what the next round of reviews were, you know, the ones that followed a month later. And of course, they were incredibly good and people loved it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody really knows or cares that, you know, PC Zone hated it. But it was a really scary, in those days, you know, these things kind of rotated on a knife edge. And certainly Virgin lost a lot of confidence when PC Zone um, slagged it off. Um, and then interestingly... And you live and die, you live and die by those reviews back then as we well. We do, we do, we absolutely did. And the, the interesting thing is, because PC Zone doesn't exist anymore, um, and... You know, one of my favorite people in Yorkshire is Jamie Sefton, who was the editor, but he was much later. He was the editor of PC Zone, so much later. But the interesting thing is that, uh, and I've told Jamie this, is that um, Virgin went ballistic and they pulled all the advertising from PC Zone and there was a big bust up. And then they made up and everything went on. But PC Zone kind of hated revolution for years after that, as if somehow this was our fault. Um, it was really strange. So, you know, we, 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 we got absolutely brilliant reviews from everybody, apart from PC Zone, every time we wrote a game. Um, so we kind of braced ourselves every time we, we, we wrote a new game because we knew that they would hate it. An amazing thing about you is that you've managed to stay MD of the company uh, to this day. And uh, we talked to so many developers of either uh, Ken from Sierra, for example, of uh, sold the company or are doing something else and uh, you're actually in 2020 md of revolution and you're able to bring games like broken sword to the switch did you ever think you'd be doing that <laughs> no i mean i love i love doing it as well um we never really set out to sell ourselves or to become valuable we, we kind of always did it because we loved it to be honest and and this is a terrible thing to say, but the thing I really love is when we hear from fans, because ultimately they're the ones that make or break you. 
um, and we hear the most wonderful things. Let me tell you about Broken Sword 3, which we, we haven't talked about because this is relevant to this, this, yeah, this sure. question. Um, Broken Sword 3, I think, is, you know, I'm very proud of Broken Sword 3. A, a lot of people say it's their favorite Broken Sword game. I mean, a lot of people disagree, but it's it's really, you know, it's, it's a good game. And, you know, please, please do, do play it if you haven't done and you're a fan of Broken Sword. Um, but we worked with a, an American publisher called THQ that at that time was the biggest publisher in the world. And the way that the finances worked, which were insane, was that they would fund most of the development and then pay you a royalty if you recouped. But the royalty was uh, about 7% of the retail price, less all the development cost. In other words, 93% went to the publisher and the retailer, 7% in theory went to developers, provided they could recoup their development costs. But of course, the development cost was the vast bulk of the um, of, 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 of the overall cost of getting this thing to market. So we found ourselves in the case of Broken Sword 3, because we were being paid in dollars and the dollar plunged, we had to take out a bank loan of over 200,000 pounds. THQ made a profit of about $5 million. We never recouped. So... <laughs> So, you know, two years later, we found ourselves with this massive great overdraft that we were having to pay every month. And THQ had made a profit of $5 million. And, you know, I'm not criticizing THQ. You know, that was kind of, there were too many developers and not enough publishers and they could pick and choose. And that was the way they chose to do it. Um, but we were in real, real trouble. We, we then wrote Broken Sword 4 with Sumo, but, but that was a problematic um, development. And you know, not from Sumo's perspective, but, but for many, you know, it was in THQ again. So we went into, that was, you know, uh, I don't know, 2004, 2005. We went into that period and we were effectively bankrupt. Um, we had this overdraft with the bank. We had no way of paying it back. Um, I started doing um, consultancy to, 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 to earn the money. And I have to say, I loved it. I worked, first of all, with the BBC or second of all with BBC on Doctor Who, which was fantastic with Stephen Moffat. And, you know, they're a really talented team there. Really enjoyed that. Um, then I worked uh, on The Da Vinci Code um, with Ron Howard uh, and the guys at Take Two. And, and it was really, really Perfect fun. fit. That, that's a perfect fit for you as well, the yeah, Da Vinci yeah, yeah. Code. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story. Actually, I've told this before, but you probably you might not have heard it. So basically, um, the guys at Take Two phone me up and say, um, you know, would you like to consult on this on this game? Okay, well, to be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of the Da Vinci Code um, because a lot of our fans think that he stole all our ideas, which obviously I'm not going to make that claim, but, you know, they're welcome to. Um, so, and also... The idea of the whole Priory of Scion, I mean, it is nonsense. Just, you know, if you're out there listening, it's fake news. It is just nonsense. Please just trust me, it's nonsense. Um, and, you know, and I'll give you a wonderful, again, serendipity, um, a, a very dear friend from school, uh, nothing to do with revolution, nothing to do with Knights Templar, uh, invited me to his parents' little mill in in the Dordogne. And we went to, we went and stayed. And, um, my son and I were canoeing down the, um, the Dordogne and my, my wife uh, was waiting because she got the car and she went to a little place called Karaniak. And Karaniak has got two or three hundred people, tiny little village, one of those beautiful villages looking high above the Dordogne. And she went and had a cup of coffee um, and got a bit bored. 
And so she walked around the town and there's a church and there's a little art gallery. So she went into the art gallery and um, there was a book in the middle with a Knights Templar cross on it. So she picked it up and the owner of the gallery saw her and walked over and asked her in French, she speaks no French, why she was interested in that book. And she answered in English. And it turned out that he is, was a guy called Jean-Luc Chamoy, who had interviewed Pierre Plantard, the guy who was claimed to be the Grand Master of the Priory of Sion in the 70s. So we had come across the most knowledgeable person in the world about the Priory of Sion in this tiny little village overlooking the Dordogne while she was waiting for, for this canoe to go past. And she said, you know, you, my, my husband would love to, 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 to meet you. So, you know, I remember we, we, we sat and we drank champagne. He cut up saucisson. And we talked about the Priory of Sion and his interviews in the 70s, you know, the photographs. And it was just incredible. And it, it just was amazing. Anyway, on the basis of that, um, and because I needed the money, um, I, I, I said to the guys at Take Two, well, look, you know, it's something I'm, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd love to talk, you know, further with. And then the next day, the guy phones me up, that nice guy um, called, called Bill Gross. And he says, look, I know that we haven't agreed anything with you, but could you come over to meet with Ron Howard? And I said, yes, but I don't know anything about what we're going to do. He said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, you, you know, we'll pay you for your consultancy. You know, I totally understand. We haven't paid you to think about the game. It doesn't matter at all. Just could you come along just to be there? So I was on a consultancy rate. I was on business class. I was in a nice hotel. It was incredible. I thought, this is the way Hollywood works. It's, you know, what, what more could you want? And um, the next morning, having had a nice meal with these guys, the senior vice president of Sony Pictures um, meets me. And she says, Charles, thank you so much for coming. This is going to be really contentious. So if I was you, I'd sit at the back and you just don't say anything because, you know, it's, it's, it's going to get lively, but it'll be all right. But just the fact that you've come means the world to us. And I said, thanks, Julie. That's, that's really kind of you. So anyway, I sit at the back and um, we've got Bill, Bill Gross from Take Two, um, Julie, a couple of other guys. In walks um, Ron Howard. He's really furious. He says, guys, I've got 15 minutes and all I've come to do is to tell you that there isn't going to be a game. There cannot be a game. And Julie says, uh, do you know what? There is going to be a game because there's a contract signed. We've signed a contract with these guys. They paid money that's helping your film. There's going to be a game. So Ron looks at his lawyer and the lawyer goes, yeah, I'm afraid that's the case. Okay, says, okay, says Ron. In that case, it's got to come six months after the, after the film. No, Ron, says Julie. It's going to be day and date because that's what the contract says. Day and date. That's what it has to be. And the lawyer goes, I'm afraid, Ron, that's the case. Okay, he says, in that case, there can't be any marketing. And everyone's looking around the room. And Julie says, Ron, there's going to be a game. It's going to be day and date. And there's going to be marketing. So Ron looks her in the eye and says, so what are you going to do with my story? And she says, without missing a beat, Ron, I'm so pleased you asked that question. Because we've flown this guy all the way from England. And he's going to tell you what we're going to do with your story. And everybody looks around the room, including me, <laughs> to who on earth is Paul? You're looking behind you. <laughs> I'm looking behind me, and I realise it's me. <laughs> I, I haven't given it any thought whatsoever. And she helpfully says, and he knows all about the Knights Templar. 
So Ron is furious at this stage. He goes, what do you know about the Knights Templar? And I say, well, um, I was invited to a Knights Templar ceremony in, in Worcester Cathedral last year. I said, I went and they had the regalia and the crosses and it was all cool. But I said, I have no idea how authentic they were, but, you know, it was it was fun. Oh, where do you come from? I said, well, I come from the city of York in England. He went, yeah, which, of course, is where Constantine the Great was declared emperor. And he said, no, it was in Constantinople, wasn't it? And I said, no, 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 no. He founded Constantinople, but only after being declared emperor in the city of York in England. And he looked at me and went, wow. And everyone's looking around the room going, holy crap. You know, maybe it's not <laughs> going to be a disaster after all. So he says to me, so what are you going to do with my story? Totally changed his, 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 his demeanor. I say, well, Ron, and, and I, I've got to think. I go, it's all about symbolism. I don't know if you've read, if, for any of anybody who's listening who's read um, the, the, the Da Vinci Code, um, Robert Langdon is a symbologist. Um, it's a non-existent term, uh, and it means nothing. But it basically, you know, if you're going to say that it was about something, you'd say it was about symbolism. And Ron looks at me and he goes, that's exactly what I think. It's about symbolism. And his eyes light up and, he, and, and, and everyone's going, wow, wow. And then he says, can you give me an example? And there's a pregnant pause. And I look at him and you could hear a pin drop. And I'm going, um, I, I, I really not. And then I say, Ron, I'm going to give you an example of what we're going to put into this game. In medieval, in medieval paintings, the art style would change, the symbolism, the, sorry, the, 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 the style would change, everything would change, but the symbolism is always the same. Mary Magdalene would always wear a red outer garment and the Virgin Mary would always wear a blue outer garment. And a medieval audience would have recognized that symbolism and they'd have known exactly who was who. And he turned around to his writer, Akiva Goldsman, and he said, oh my God, he said, uh, I can see Sophie Neuveur coming out of Roslyn Chapel wearing a shawl. And then he looked at me and said, is it red or blue? I went, it's red for Mary Madeline, blue for the Virgin Mary. And we got on like a house on fire. Did you say, have you played Broken Sword? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you another story about that in a moment, though. Um, a lot of that came across. I mean, in the end, the game, I'm afraid, was rather cocked up. Um, I would like to think it wasn't very much to do with me. Um, the developer was the collective, um, but anyway, that that it was it was a pleasure um, working with Sony um, and and Imagine Pictures, which was Ron Howard's company, and indeed Take Two and Bill Gross, who was was a was a fabulous fabulous man. Um, but I think we're probably going to run out of time. But so the first one has so much history that I love. I mean, in terms of development, obviously it's got history history as well. Um, Broken Sword Two, um, as I say, Virgin really really didn't want to commission it at all. Um, and um, that, of course, was about the Mayans, the end of the world. Um, we wrote that in a year. Uh, we had already designed a lot of it um, in anticipation, um, and Virgin told us that we could only write it if we wrote it. They'd only commission it if we wrote it in a year. And the funny thing is, despite the success of Broken Sword 1 on PlayStation, Virgin turned down the right to publish that one too. <laughs> so we self-published that, and again, it sold so many. It was just fantastic. Um, Broken Sword 3... Um, I really enjoyed writing. I'll move to 3D. I'm very proud of it. It changed. Um, obviously, with Broken Sword 5, we moved back to um, we moved back to, 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 to 2D. Um, Broken Sword 4 is the weakest. That was underfunded, um, and I'd love to rewrite that at some point. Um, I think a lot of people own it because um, 
you know, they want all of the games, which is fantastic. But it's undoubtedly the weakest of the lot. And I'd love to be able to go back to that one. Um, so that definitely is not my favorite. Um, and then Broken Sword 5, I so love the Kickstarter because when when you know at, when when I first started writing games, we had a very direct relationship with our audience. And you know, we'd meet them. We sold sold games through um mail order. Uh, magazine uh, adverts in the back of magazines and we'd meet these people at what were called computer fairs and it was wonderful um and i remember one young man coming up to me with his son and and, and saying do you know i love your adventure games i said thank you so much he said will you sign you know will you sign and i remember I felt like a rock star signing this this um cassette and he said but i do have something i need to tell you i convinced the missus that um you know we'd buy a zx81 for our son for his homework and i said yes that's a very good thing and he said yeah but she caught us playing your adventure games and your spelling is so bad and <laughs> she realized that actually it was all about playing games and it wasn't about education at all i said i'm so sorry he said chisel is not spelt with a z can't should have an apostrophe and he went through this litany of appalling spelling errors wow but but my point is that I kind of you know we met all these these wonderful people who who are our fans and it was great, and then we lost that direct relationship and certainly you know as I said with you know with by the time we were onto Broken Sword, you know we were commissioned by publishers. Publishers were selling to retailers. Retailers were selling to gamers. We had no direct relationship, so we didn't know. Nobody quite knew what people really wanted because there was obviously no such thing as social media. What what then happened is that, um, as I said, with THQ, we were effectively bankrupt. And then the iPhone was launched in, I believe, 2007. And we were a revolution, huge fans of Apple uh, and Steve Jobs. And a guy called Paul Burford phoned from Apple and said, look, I'm developer relations. Um, you might have heard of the iPhone. And we went, uh, yes. He said, we feel that the games that are being released onto iTunes are not making the most of the Apple and the, the iPhone. Uh, we feel that your games could work really well. And we looked around. We had been contacted by Apple and invited. I mean, they couldn't fund us or anything, but we were being invited to write games for the iPhone. And so we, the first game that we wrote was um, Beneath the Steel Sky. And... The, the the assets were at three twenty two hundred, and the phone was roughly three twenty by two hundred. So we could take the original assets and republish them at the resolution of the phone, and the game went really well and sold well, and we were thrilled. And Apple got gave it a lot of support, and um, then we brought Broken Sword across, and by now it was the next generation of iPhones. And um, the original assets were 64400, which by extraordinary serendipity was roughly the resolution of the Apple at that point. So again, you know, as the Apple had up-resed, so our games up And again, Apple gave us big support. Now, remember, they asked us if we'd be something, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. It's called the 12 Days of Christmas, where uh, an app and then, um, and then a film and then a bit of music is given away each day. And um, they asked if we would be part of 12 Days of Christmas. And bearing in mind that, you know, we're a, a really poor, virtually bankrupt, small little studio in York, in the north of England. And they, uh, on the day that it, it, it was the main 12 Days of Christmas, we had two and a half million downloads in one day. It was just unbelievable. And 
we realized that actually um, an Apple are a terrific company. We, we realized that, you know, because the guy who was organizing it, who um, was, was just so enthusiastic and he was getting in, in, in contact over the weekend and saying, look what's happening, look what's happening. And he was really excited on our behalf and it was just a great partnership. And um, we, we then wrote Broken Sword 5 um, for, 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 through the Kickstarter. And what had happened is that we were slowly building a direct relationship with our community. And I remember when we released Broken Sword 1, um, I'd gone to the Apple store in uh, Regent Street and asked them if they could host it. And um, Robin Lingwood was the, the manager. And he said, well, we've got Robbie Williams next week. Uh, and we've got the cast of the Vampires Diaries, Diaries in three weeks, um, but we haven't got anything in two weeks. So, you know, I guess I could give it to you then. And, you know, my eyes opened and, I, and we had no money. I said, I, I, it sounds great, but how much would it be? He said, oh, we don't charge. So we launched the game at the Regent Street Apple Store. And I had no idea if anybody was going to come along. Um, the wonderful Barrington Philong, who wrote our music, who sadly passed away last year, or maybe it's earlier this year, um, turned up with his his wife, Heather. And Heather is a huge adventure fan. And it was really, she was uh, an instrumental part of the of, of the whole writing of the music. There was a, uh, somebody had done some music. Um, uh, he, he came along. We had people queuing. We had people queuing to get in. I had no idea whether anybody was going to come. And there was such an enthusiasm and it was wonderful. And this was the first time we'd actually met our community. It was the first time we'd had the opportunity. And it was, you know, young men and women, um, roughly equal gender, multiple different ethnicities. It was just an incredible cross-section of wonderful people. And they were, all they had in common was the fact that they were fans of Broken Sword. And it was really that, that um, experience that gave me the confidence to, you know, when when Tim Schafer was successful with Broken Age, to to do the Broken Sword Five Kickstarter, which was an incredible um, and and a wonderful wonderful um, project, and you know, and we built a, a relationship with people that were very passionate about Broken Sword, and you know, you hear horrible stories about the toxicity of communities. Our adventure community are just lovely people, you know. They were just incredibly lucky. There is. So little toxicity. You know, of course they get very angry. I mean, we, we screwed up. I, I really screwed up for Broken Sword 5 once, or probably many times, but but once I remember is that um, we promised that it was going to be DRM-free. And we got to the point where the production was such that unless we put out the same Steam version to our fans, for, to the Kickstarter fans, it was going to come later than the retail version, which I thought was utterly unacceptable. So... You know, I went, okay, let's just give them the Steam version. I know it's going to, we'll, we'll sort it out, you know, because we're in a turmoil. And when it came out, there was uproar and people were really upset. And of course they were upset because we had said that we would give them a DRM-free version and we'd give them a Steam version. Uh, I remember there was lots of, you know, swearing and, you know, these guys are the traders and bloody, bloody, blur. You know, people say, you've got to get back to them straight away. You've got to go. And I said, no, I'll get back to them in the morning. And in the morning, I, I, I was actually in France at the time. I phoned the rest of the team and I said, look, we promised one thing. We haven't delivered it. We need to. What we're going to do is we're going to produce 5,000 DRM-free versions of Broken Sword, and we're going to send them for anybody who's registered who wants it. And we did it. And the extraordinary thing is 
that suddenly everybody's mood completely changed. They went, these guys care what we think. Oh my God, they're sending it. We sent it out to everybody and we had screwed up and we had failed to deliver what we promised, but then we remedied straight away and people really appreciated the fact that we we cared and so you know for a small studio like revolution you know we we live or die by the relationship that we have with our community and it's really important so we do we do work really hard sometimes you obviously you can't keep everybody happy all the time it's impossible but we do try our but very one best. one one great thing about you reconnecting with the community is that you've bought out a new title as well which is the follow-on of beneath a steel sky which is beyond a steel sky so this game looks absolutely beautiful another visually stunning game and uh, it's how, really how have you it. kind of how have you used the new technology and well, uh, well, well created well. some new interactive experiences so so basically this all kicked off about three years ago actually when um I went back to Dave. Broken Sword Five was was fairly successful. I mean, we can never we're never rich enough to actually fund our own games totally, but we got to the point where we could fund the prototype, and we funded the prototype for Broken Sword Five, and with the profits of that, we were able to fund the prototype of Beyond the Steel Sky. And I, I got in, in contact with Dave, um, and Dave and I have been you know stayed in contact for, over the twenty five years, and he was very much up to work with us on the game again, and. Um, we decided that we were going to license uh, Unreal Engine um, from Epic, uh, which is a, just an awesome piece of technology. Um, and we'd worked on Broken Sword 3 with a, uh, a fellow uh, Italian artist called Emanuele Salvucci. Again, the serendipity, because I was just talking to him this afternoon, so this is where I remember. We decided to go and see England play Italy in Rome about four years ago. Or maybe it was five years ago. I don't know. It would it would have been four years ago because we should have played uh, England should have played Italy um, earlier this year, and um, we 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 were in, in a hotel in a wonderful place uh, called it was just a little place um, in, in a grand area. It was a it was a cheap hotel in a grand area um, called uh, uh, Borghese, Villa Borghese, and um, I thought I hadn't talked to um, Erpi as he calls himself. Um, so I called, I phoned him up and said, look, I haven't seen you for five years, but we're in Rome. Why don't you come over? And um, he came over and, and we, we told him that we were planning to write, you know, a sequel. And, you know, we'd love to get this particular look. And he said, I think I can help you. And he went away and he wrote something called Toon Toy. And Toon Toy, instead of the texture being, sorry, instead of the, the, the lines that define being a texture like they are on, say, um, you know, if you think of the, the Wolf Among Us, um, or The Walking Dead, characters have a texture on their cheek, which is a line in, in the distance. You know, it looks great. And as it gets closer, it turns into this sort of black gash across their face. And I wanted to sort of move on to something that was more sophisticated than that. So what he did was create a system whereby we could actually apply uh, normal maps, which were displayed like textures, but it meant that you could control the thickness of the line and the color of the line. And you could, you know, what you could produce is a lot more... Um, subtle and dave was absolutely thrilled with this um and then again we built a, a, an incredible team um we you know one of the long-term people that we've had um is yoast yoast peters who's dutch who came to us um when we wanted he was he basically was um one of three students um or sorry one of three adventure enthusiasts with scum vm um who took on the responsibility for porting Beneath the Steel Sky to ScumVM. And 
you know, that's an incredible, that was an incredible achievement because it was written for DOS. So effectively, once uh, uh, Windows stopped supporting DOS, then people could no longer play. And thanks to the work of Yoast and Robert Groffingham and somebody else, um, the game now could be available and is still played to this day. Thanks, thanks to those guys. Um, but he'd come to Revolution to do some work experience and then came and stayed and, and is still with us, I'm very pleased to say. Um, and, and he's terrific. And, um, you know, he's a huge Beneath the Steel Sky fan. Um, you know, l- likewise, uh, Sutra Singh, who is our art director, who um, had worked on Broken Sword 3, um, I think his first job in the industry. Andy Bosquet, who was his first job in the industry, uh, all of whom had started at Revolution. Then when we'd fallen on very hard times and had to close down the studio, um, they'd gone off. And, and a lot of these people came back, as well as a lot of new people as well. And it was just great to build up this team. We were super secretive about it, um, despite the fact that I'm incredibly bad at keeping secrets. I'm very indiscreet in that way. Um, and of course, we were absolutely privileged that um, Apple um, chose it as one of their Apple Arcade titles, um, which was fantastic because what they said was, you know, their, their first question is, how, how, can, how can our involvement make it more ambitious, was what they said. And they said, look, we're very happy for it to appear on other platforms as well. They, they, you know, they, they've been an incredible partner. What's the reaction from fans been like? Originally, when the PC first launched, for reasons that were a terrible mistake, we released with some bugs. So um, now on Steam, we're 9 out of 10. Um, on Apple Arcade, we're getting great reviews. I mean, it's really, I mean, this game I'm really, really proud of. And, you know, I apologize to people who played it originally and encountered bugs. People who didn't encounter those bugs loved it. We got fantastic reviews. And for people who did, quite rightly, they got a bit miffed. But, um, you know, we, we, we absolutely worked as hard as we could to fix everything. And it's now a game that's just getting great, great reviews. I'm very proud of it. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you. And you know what? I think we're going to have to make this a two-part episode, aren't we? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's been really fun having you on, Charles. I, I wish we could have talked for a, even longer because you've got some fascinating stories and it's a, a, a fantastic company. Well, thank you. I mean, really, I've had the privilege of writing, you know, adventure games for 40 years. And so I've got a lot to talk about because a lot happens over 40 years. Um, and I have no doubt that people who are starting now, if they're lucky enough to still be writing games in 40 years, will be having um, stories that are every bit or as, if not more interesting, um, but obviously very different because this is such a dynamic industry and it changes so rapidly.